The name of the message is Jesus is the propitiation for the Father's love of the world. The Father's love for the world. And that will play a, a word uh, problem in your head probably if you've grown up in church thinking about what propitiation means. Um, a propitiation just means the satisfying or the appeasing of something, right? And we, we've all kind of been taught that uh, God was angry and Jesus had to appease or satisfy his anger. But if you read the context of those verses, which we'll get into here in a second, it, Jesus is really the, the satisfying of God's desire to love the world. That God sat with a desire to love the world, and Jesus appeased or satisfied the burning in God's bones to love the world. That's really what propitiation means. I mean, and even if you look at the Latin root of the word, to be propitious means to be, find favor towards someone. It means to be their advocate. It means to be their friend. And so Jesus being the propitiation for our sin is actually talking about Jesus coming as God to be our advocate against the death that was in the world. And he saw we needed an advocate. And Jesus satisfied God's desire to be our advocate. <laughs> That'll change it all, man. And that's what I'm talking about. When you start seeing God like that, that's when you, you, you're not just agreeing, yeah, yeah, God's my friend. I know, yes, I, I have a friend in God. I know the song. No, no, no. No, no, no. You don't just know there's a song. And you, you don't just agree. But like you're knowing by way of experiencing what it means that that guy's your friend. Right? So we'll just pray real quick. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. Thank you that you've drawn near to us. Thank you that your desire is to, to be with us, that you're here with us, that you're even in us. Lord, just in, enrich us with your word. Comfort, it, comfort us with your truth. Just heal our whole spirit, souls, and bodies with the word of your life. Father, we just commit our lives into your hands. We commit all our troubles into your hands. We commit all our cares into your hands, Lord. Just use your Holy Spirit that you've poured out into us to bring something forth in our hearts. Well, we start talking with you about the cares we carry, that we start talking with you about the trouble we see in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you care for us and that it's your good pleasure to carry our lives on you. Thank you, Father. Amen. Glory to God. So like I said, you guys have to forgive me if I'm not as organized today i'm kind of all over the place you know you cry like a baby and you kind of lose sight of what you want to say or how you want to say it and then you talk out of order the good news is is that the power is not found in greg talking in order the power is found in the god who brings order out of the midst of chaos but like we said we're going to look at propitiation today um, in the scriptures and what it means that jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not our sins only but the sin of the whole world, right? What, is, what does that mean? One of the most important things in my life and in everybody's life with God, obviously, is what we believe about the sacrifice of Jesus. That is one of the most important things in our lives is what we think about what went down there and what we think it means. Right? There's a word being made flesh at the cross. right? And the word that's being made flesh there at the cross is a word about God. It's a word about who He is. 
and it's a word about what's in his heart. That cross there, it's like a picture of the parable of the sower sowing the seed, right? The seed is the word. Well, there's a word being made flesh about God on the cross. And God's trying to sow that word into the world, into our hearts. A word about him, a word about who he is, a word about what's in his heart for us, a word about what he sees when he sees us, a word about his thoughts about us. And that word, man, just like the parable of the sower sowing the seed says, within that word is the increase of life. Within that word is the fruit of God's life. Within that word is the power to shape your life. And so it's a very serious thing what you believe about what happened there. Because whatever you believe that word is declaring about God at the cross, it's going to shape your life. It's going to produce fruit in you. It's going to produce thoughts in you about God. It's going to produce thoughts and feelings in you when you encounter the tribulation in this world. It's going to produce thoughts and feelings in you about your life, about other people's lives, about God, and about your life with God. And out of that will come flowing forth the issues of your life. And so it's very important what we believe about that. I can't say that enough. And that's why I hammer this so much. But we'll, we'll take the scripture verses from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, and we'll go from verse 1, and we'll just read a, a few of the verses. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. <laughs> I love flipping the tables upside down. Just wait, just wait. You guys already decided what commandments mean. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Some of the heavy things there, boy. We got to walk as Jesus walked. Right? The problem is we think we know how Jesus walked, and we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. A couple, couple of things real quick. To, and I'll get to this at the end. It says, my little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. And if any person sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now, real quick, when you look at that in the Greek, what it means is we have an advocate if we sin according to the will of the Father. That's how it actually reads. That God desired for us to have an advocate, and he sent Jesus to be an advocate for us in the day we found ourselves in sin. That's what he's saying, that it was the Father's will for us to have an advocate. So it's not that... We needed an advocate towards the Father. That's not what it's saying there. It's saying that the Father's will was that we would have someone to stand next to us. In the day, we found ourselves having our nakedness uncovered, and we found ourselves being accused, and we found ourselves with the death in the world trying to work condemnation in us. The Father desired that there could be an advocate with us 
in that place to comfort us in that moment by persuading us that we weren't orphans in the earth, but that we had a father who loved us, whose good pleasure it was, was to remove the sentence of death that hanged over us, that it was to remove the, the sin that beset, so easily beset us as far as the east is from the west. We had a father whose good pleasure it was, was to justify us and to prove what he said was true when he said, it is good when he made man. That's the whole point that he's making there. God desired that we would have that. Okay? That's what he's saying. Now, how did Jesus walk? <laughs> and I don't mean like, did he have like a limp? You know, was he like, I mean, earlier this morning, I was like skipping around, playing worship songs, and skipping to my loo, 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 skip to my loo. I don't know. He's not talking about did Jesus walk with like a strut? You know, was he like the Fonz? Was he like Arthur Fonzarelli? <laughs> what do the young, young people call it? A pimp limp? Uh, old, you, you guys that are in a generation older than me, that's not a vulgar term. We don't mean a literal pimp. We just mean do they walk like they're cool? You know, that's what that means. So how did Jesus walk? Now listen, guys, we get to 1 John and we act like we don't have a whole gospel of John where John has defined all these things already himself and told us what all these things actually mean. We tend to read 1 John, and we're completely void that John has talked about all these things already in his gospel and already given clear-cut explanations of what those things mean. So how did Jesus walk? If you look in John 15, verse 10, it says, Jesus abided in the word of the Father's love. So how did Jesus walk? He walked in the word of the Father's love. That's how he walked in this earth. His mind was always filled that the Father's heart was only filled with loving kindness towards him. That's how Jesus walked in the earth. He walked in the word of the Father's goodness towards him. He imbibed in the word that the Father could only ever be good to him and was only ever filled with loving kindness towards him. That even should the Father, this is how Jesus walked, that even should the Father find him dead in sin, the Father wouldn't leave him for dead. But the Father would come to him and fill him with the wine of his life and make a place for him to dwell in his house for all eternity. That's how Jesus walked in the earth. He walked being fully persuaded of that. And we see that testimony on the cross. And so you want to say, how did Jesus walk? Well, go straight to the cross when his hands are nailed to the tree and he can't do anything with his own hands because it's not a message of the morality of Jesus. When you talk about how did Jesus walk? How did he walk when his hands were nailed to the tree? Because there he was dying in sin. And what did he say? The father is the lover of my life. This death that's come upon me is not a result of his face being hid from me. He has not abhorred me in this affliction. He is not the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. But he is the lover of my life. And he hears me when I cry. God hears you when you cry. And the resurrection is the proof that he doesn't just hear, but he answers. And so that's how Jesus walked. He walked in the earth knowing that. Abba, into your hands I commit my life. He abided in the Father's love for him. Nothing in the world could convince him that the Father wasn't filled with loving kindness towards him and all people, even should he find them dead in their sin. How do we know? Well, what did he do in the account of the woman caught in the act of adultery? 
Because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What did he do there? He, did he condemn the woman? He moved the, the sentence of condemnation, the, the death that was hanging over her, he moved it out of the way. Did he accuse her? No, he justified her in the midst of the accusations. He healed her, actually. He clothed upon her nakedness. He manifested the love in the Father's heart for him. See, that's how Jesus walked. He walked in the knowledge of the love of God. And he never confused the Father with the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. He never confused the Father with that guy. And that's why he could always manifest the Father everywhere he went. Because he walked in the word of the Father's love. So that, that's what it means to walk like Jesus, right? That's what it means to walk like Jesus. That's real simple, isn't it? We say it is, but everything in this world, you know, it's geared to move us off of knowing that God loves us, right? Everything. <laughs> I mean, when you're nailed to a tree, it's real easy to think, does God love me? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's like... What? That's when the serpent's accusation, I mean, the serpent's accusation wouldn't have any, any way to deceive us if we didn't think there was some evidence that kind of corroborated it, right? <laughs> Keeping the commandment of Jesus. Again, man, we get to 1 John and we act like there's not a whole book of like 20 something chapters where John defines all these things. If we keep the commandment of Jesus, what is the commandment of Jesus? Do you know what the commandment of the, Jesus is? The revelation of the Father and the love in the Father's heart for the world. That's the commandment of Jesus. And some of you are thinking, well, how can that be? Go read John 12. Because in John 12, Jesus says he isn't come to declare himself, but he's come to reveal the Father, even as the Father has given him commandment. And then go back to read John chapter 1, where Jesus specifically says the Word was made flesh so that we could behold his glory. And that we could see who the Father was in His face. And so the very purpose of Jesus was to come and reveal the Father. And so the, the commandment the Father gave the Son was to go into the earth and reveal us to the world. So that the world might know that we love them in the same way they'll see me loving you when I raise you up out of the grave. They'll see I wasn't despising you when you were naked on the cross. They'll see that my face wasn't hidden from you. They'll see that I wasn't the one destroying you or punishing you. They'll see that I'm the healer, that I'm the justifier, that I'm the one that removes the sentence of death. They'll see I'm the good Samaritan and I'm not the thief. That's the commandment of Jesus. He come to declare the Father's love. Jesus goes on to say in John chapter 12 that the commandment he was given from the Father is unto everlasting life. So this thing, Jesus came to teach the world, should they hear it, it will produce everlasting life in them. That's what he said. Well, then if you fast forward to John 17, Jesus says, this is life everlasting, that you know the Father. <laughs> and so do you know what declared the Father in the earth? The cross and the resurrection. What does the cross say about the Father? I'd rather take your death into myself than allow you to die. I'd rather taste this death for you than watch you taste this death. What does the resurrection say about the Father? That he'd rather die himself than spend all his days without you there. That's, 
That's the commandment of Jesus, the revelation of the Father's love. Jesus came to reveal the Father so that we could know God as the one whose good pleasure is to father his life in us free from our works. That's the commandment of Jesus. So when, when John says, if you keep the commandment of Jesus, when you keep his commandment, it's if you call God Father. It's if you see that the Father has come to place his name behind your name. That he's come to surname you. That he's come to claim you as his own. That he's come to tell you that you're not an orphan. That you're not left in the world to care for yourself, but that he's come to care for your life. And he doesn't need any contribution from you. And you allow God to surname you. That's keeping the commandment of Jesus. Calling upon the name of the Lord. Jesus kept his own commandment when his hands were nailed to the cross because he called upon the name of the Lord. He called God Father. He knew God as the one that would father his life in him free from his works. That's keeping the commandment of Jesus. I'm telling you, man. It's like, thank God for the Holy Spirit. And so thank God that that he can also feel like Popeye sometimes. I've had all I can stand, I can't stand no more. And I don't mean he feels like that about people. I mean like he's had enough of his name being blasphemed in the earth. And he's had enough of the body of Christ having been infected with the poison of asps, and it's the body of Christ that is actually spewing forth the blaspheming of the name of the Lord in the earth. And because if there's nothing good about me that I know this stuff. It's just God's decided enough's enough. Just like he decided when he sent Jesus. In the fullness of times, he got tired of hearing people say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. He got tired of people thinking that he was the thief that was stealing, killing, and destroying. Because he got tired of them cowering away from him in fear under destruction. He said, enough! Once and for all, we're going to manifest ourselves in the midst of the earth that they might know us. That's, that's the commandment of Jesus. That's what he come to do. I'm going to manifest the Father, right? And so what did the woman caught in the count of adultery, which is a perfect picture of the commandment of Jesus, by the way. That is Jesus manifesting the Father. What did the Pharisees come and say? Moses says such should be stoned. When they say Moses says, do you know what they're saying? God says, Moses brought the word of God. He was the prophet. That means you come with the word of God. And so those Pharisees says, God says this woman must be stoned. But there's Jesus, and he come to manifest the Father in the midst of all the people so they could see who the Father really is. All these people think the Father's the punisher, not the justifier. He's the condemner, not the healer. And there's Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, the Father has given me a commandment that I might reveal him to you. I'm about to show you how the Father gets down. And then he removes the sentence of death. And then he justifies the woman from the accusation. <laughs> That's the commandment of Jesus. Now, if you keep that commandment, if you see the Father, you know what's going to come forth in you? I'm not an orphan. You'll probably cry for a second because you thought you were all alone. And that's why the woman was doing what she was doing because that's what adultery is. Adultery is a spiritual thing it's trying to talk about. You committed adultery on God. How do you commit adultery on God? You fornicate with your own works, your own strength to try to give yourself life. You're living like an orphan because you don't know there's someone that will care for your life. 
And so Jesus manifested the Father because if you could see the Father, that'll bring something forth in you where you no longer think you're an orphan. You're no longer fornicating with your own works. And your heart begins calling upon the name of the Lord. Abba! <laughs> right? You guys see that? That woman caught in the count of a dog. That's a perfect picture of the commandment of Jesus and what it's talking about. Reveal the Father. And guys, honestly, when I say these things sometimes as I was preparing this message, I was like, this is so contrary to everything people say and everything people think. But then when I go back and look at it, it's so freaking obvious that this is what it's saying. The verses, it's so obvious. Jesus said, the Father has given me a commandment that I would come and reveal Him. John 1 starts with that Jesus came to declare the Father. No one knew the Father, John says. But the Son, He has come to what? Declare Him. That's the commandment. The declaration of the Father. <laughs> and you might say, well, how can I keep that? Exactly. You know how you can keep that? You can believe what Jesus revealed about the Father. And that just means you can allow yourself to be persuaded. Not that you can work it up. So if you find yourself struggling with it, you go to the Father and talk about where you got a wrinkle or a crank. I hear what that guy says, but I got this thing right here, kind of like, and he'll minister to that place. Glory to God. All right, I'm sorry. We spent all that time with the background, and we didn't get even into the message. Amen. So <laughs> we got like 20 messages already. What do we, I'm a little bit delirious, man. Um, <laughs> verse 2, and he is the propitiation for our sin, and not for our sin only, but also for the sin of the whole world. Okay? The word propitiation. In the Greek, it means an appeasing of something or an atonement. Atonement, we think punishment. Atonement in ancient Hebrew actually means restoration. It means the restoring of something that had fallen astray or had walked off the path. That's what it's talking about. So propitiation means an appeasing of something or an atonement or a restoration from something. That's what it speaks of. Right? So when you, you could think about it like with fear. If we had fear in our hearts, God would want the fear to be removed from our hearts. And so propitiation would be about God restoring our hearts from fear, removing the fear, and instead filling them with love. That's what it would be about. That's what he'd be busy with. Right? So what's happened, like I said, is the serpent's got it right to inject his poison into much of the church's doctrine concerning propitiation. And so he don't really care if you believe historically Jesus died on the cross. He's busy trying to pervert the word that was made flesh. That's what he's busy. He knows that Jesus come into the earth to reveal the Father. He knows it's hook, line, and sinker, game over for him the, person, the moment a person sees the Father. Because the moment a person sees the Father, they're not living like an orphan anymore. And he can't convince them that the Father is filled with anger towards them. And he can't keep them from running to the Father. He can't get them to run away from the Father. He's done. And so he's got to work very hard to keep the image of God maligned. I mean, that's how he got Eve off kilter. He said there was something wrong with God. Did that guy really say you can't eat from that tree? He's holding out on you. He's unrighteous. That's what he told her. He questioned the integrity of God towards her life. 
And so God, the devil, he's, he's one trick pony. All he could do is get our hearts to question the integrity of God's love for us. And if he could get that twisted up inside of us, we'll all the time be filled with labors and toilings, trying to clothe ourselves with life, thinking if we could clothe ourselves with enough life, then we can come to daddy and say, look, look at the life I clothed myself in. Then God's face would shine down upon us. That's what he's trying to do. And so all he wants to do is get it twisted up. Go ahead and believe that a historical event happened where Jesus died on the cross. But we're going to get them to say that was the father punishing the son. Because that won't reveal the father in Jesus. That will reveal the serpent. That won't declare the good Samaritan. That will declare the thief. <laughs> and then, once again, we'll paint God in the image of the thief. Uh, so that propitiation oftentimes portrayed as Jesus appeasing God's anger over our sin instead of appeasing God's desire to love us out of death and love us into his life. That's what God's desire was, and he needed an outlet. Have you ever wanted to do something and felt frustrated if you, if you couldn't do it? Right? Like you didn't feel satisfaction, Right? You, you want to do something, and no matter what, you just can't get it out. I used to feel like that when I preached all the time in the beginning, where I knew this thing I had to say was awesome, and I never felt like I could get it out. And so I never felt satisfied at the end of preaching. I walked away feeling very unhappy and very upset, thinking, I didn't say that right. I'm not, I'm not a good talker. But if you think you could get it out right, you could feel satisfaction. So God first sat with the desire to love us out of death and love us into life. And propitiation is about God's desire to do that, being satisfied by Jesus coming into the earth and committing his life into the hands of Abba. And Abba raising him up out of the grave. And now God could feel satisfaction in his heart that he was able to crush the head of the serpent, the wisdom of the serpent, the carnal mind that entered the earth, and he could reveal the true knowledge of who he was. Right? That we could see the glory of the Lord. That's what it's talking about. So 1 John, if you read 1 John 2, 2, it quite clearly says, somebody please tell me which translation says that Jesus is the propitiation for God's anger over our sin. Someone please tell me which translation says that. I'll wait. There isn't one. There isn't one. And so it quite clearly says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin not the propitiation for God's anger. It doesn't say that. And in fact, you know, we struggle to read a verse and put that verse in the context of the whole book. We read that verse, it's like we forget it's there, and we read through the rest of the book, and we don't let the rest of the book or the letter interpret the verses. But do you know what happens if you keep reading in 1 John? You get to chapter 4, verse 10, and you know what it goes on to say? It goes on to say propitiation is about God loving sinners, not being angry with sinners, when it says this, in this is love. Not that we loved God. We were sinners, not loving God. We were hating God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And listen to what it goes on to say. And because he loved us, he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. It doesn't say because he was angry with us that he sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin. It doesn't say, because I was angry and I needed my anger to be appeased, I sent Jesus. It says, no, no, no. 
Because I felt love for the world, even when they were dead in their sin, I sent Jesus that he could be the advocate for man against the sin and death that's in the world. That's what he's saying there. And so John's like, listen, listen, guys. And this is love, not that you love God. So John's saying, listen, guys, when we were sinners, not loving God, God was in the place where he felt love for us. So we're not loving him. <laughs> He's loving us. <laughs> we're not acting right since we're so big on behavior. We're not acting right. We're acting as wrong as we got the worst kind of fruit coming out of us that you could ever have coming out of us. Why? Because we're all the time eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the kind of fruit that's in the seed of the knowledge of good and evil is the fruit of death. So we're all the time walking around with the fruit of death coming out of us. We're all the time not loving God, but we're all the time loving our own strength. When we were in that place, John says God was in the place where he was feeling love for us. And because he felt love for us, he sent Jesus into the earth to take the death that was the wages of our sin onto himself. So because he's loving us when we weren't loving him, he came in the flesh because he'd rather take our death into himself than allow our death to come upon us. And we describe that as the anger of God. I'm telling you, it paints God in a caricature. Is what it does. It, it still resembles God, but it isn't really God. You guys know what a character is, right? Where someone paints... It's kind of distorted. It has a resemblance of you, but it isn't actually you. It's enough like you that someone could say, oh, that's Thomas. But it isn't really you. And when you paint propitiation as if it's about the appeasing of God's anger, you're painting God in a caricature. And you're painting a distorted image of God in the hearts of people. And they're not knowing the God that Jesus knew and they're not able to walk as Jesus walked. You can't actually walk in the earth as Jesus walked if you think the cross was about God punishing the Son. You can't actually walk as Jesus walked if you think that propitiation is about God's anger being satisfied because that's not the kind of thing Jesus thought. <laughs> so Jesus is the appeasement or the satisfaction, or that which restores us from our sin. That's what he is. Now, something I want everybody to do when you read the scriptures and you see the word sin, I want you to immediately think of what the wages of sin are. Death. Because it helps you see it more clearly. So when it says that Jesus is the appeasing or the propitiation of our sin, what's the wages of sin? The Apostle Paul come and said the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus is the appeasing, or that which satisfies and restores us from the death that was reigning over us because of sin. That's what it is. So he restored us from death to life. That's a real simple thing, right? We can say all those things. You know why we're going to say all those things? Because we've all been twisted up with God was angry. But it's a real simple thing. We were dying, and God desired to restore us from death to life. Who can argue with that? Now, why do you want to restore someone from death to life? Because you're angry or because you love them with an everlasting love? 
This is, a, this, is a, this is a mind-boggling statement to people that have been taught the sovereignty of God in a perverted way. But we're going to go ahead and prove the scriptures. And I'll just start with this, this radical statement that people are like, what? God didn't have the power of death. God didn't have the power of death when death was reigning over us. God didn't have the power of death. So the appeasing of our sin could never be about appeasing God's anger with us. It could never be about the son paying the father because he didn't have the power of death. God wasn't holding the key of Hades. He didn't have the key of Hades. He didn't have any of that. It wasn't God that was holding us captive to death. It wasn't God that was holding us in bondage to the death that was reigning over us. God was never Pharaoh. The serpent got it right to take the most beautiful picture of God's love for us, where he's busy thinking, I'd rather die myself and lay down my life than let death come upon them. He's gotten it right to take that beautiful image and turn it into the place where we see God like Pharaoh. It was Pharaoh that was holding the Hebrews in captivity. It wasn't God. And so God didn't even have the power of death. And if you go and read in Hebrews 2, do you know what it says? You know what it says who had the power of death? You know who it says had the power of death? The devil. It says the devil had the power of death. So the appeasing of our sin or the propitiation of our sin is about busting us loose from the gates of Hades. It's about busting us loose from the power that the devil had over us because of death. That's what it's about. Matthew 16. We'll start with verse 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth, thou shalt be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth, shall be loosed in heaven. There's a lot of stuff we could say about all that, but we're going to just try and stay on the point here. Real quick, the rock the church would be built on wouldn't be Peter. <laughs> Peter's not the rock that the church would be built on. Jesus is saying the rock that the church will be built on is the revelation that the sons of man are the sons of God. <laughs> That's the revelation that he says my church will be built upon. My church would be my body. My body will be filled out. My body will be formed. My children will be called unto me through the revelation that the sons of man are the sons of God. That's what he's saying there. Right? And that happened, that revelation that the sons of man are the sons of God happened when Jesus was raised from the dead and God brought forth his life and immortality in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That's when it happened. That's when it went down. So the, the word hell, the word hell in the Greek means Hades. That's what it means. Do you know what Hades means? It means the place of the dead or simply the grave. That's what it means. And so what we have going on is that the gates of death were standing against us. And the gates of death are still standing against human beings. It's just the gates of death cannot stand against the revelation that God is the father of mankind, 
right? So all those who see that God is their father and commit their life into God's hands, what happens is, is they have an incorruptible seed inside of them. And that incorruptible seed will actually bring forth the very immortality of God and will overcome death in the flesh and cause them to overcome the death that's in the world. And so the gates of death that are standing against humans can't prevail against people that see God's their father. Right? And so the gates of death were standing against us before Jesus came. We were being held by death, just like the Hebrews were held by Pharaoh. And Pharaoh wouldn't let them go. And Moses kept coming, let God's people go. What do you think Jesus is declaring at the cross and in the resurrection? Let my people go. And he's not like begging. He's like kicking open the gates of death, right? He's not asking politely. He's taking the thing that the devil used to hold us in captivity. He's taking the death that was reigning over us, that had shut us up from the eternal life of God, and he's trouncing that death, kicking open the gates. So we were, we were held by death, shut up unto the eternal life that God had promised us from the beginning. You think that made God happy? When God... Desired for us to live and not die, and we were dying. Do you think God's like, oh, who cares? <laughs> I promise you, that's ain't what he's like. He's like, we're about to have a jailbreak. We're about to bust these people out. You know what I'm saying? But those gates, they closed right now. So we got to get inside of the gates. And we got to mount an offensive that will kick those gates open. And to where there could never be a key that could lock the gate again. And to where we have the keys. And not only do we have the keys that open the gates of death and left the gates open, but we can also then give them the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And the floodgates of our immortality and our eternal life can be poured out into the earth. <laughs> it's like the devil had a lean, so to speak, on us or against our lives because we were joined together with death through Adam. That's why it says Satan wasn't cast out of heaven until Jesus ascended into the heavenly place as a human being, free from sin. His accusation had no more power anymore because there was a man standing there that had no death in him. And so Satan had no claim against his life. And so Satan had a sort of a, a lean against our lives because we were joined together with death through Adam. And no, none of us had the keys that could open the grave. No man had the keys that could open the grave. No man had the keys that could open the house of David. That's why the prophecy said, I will give you the keys of the house of David. And it's talking to Jesus. It's talking about Jesus coming. Do you know what the keys to the house of David is? Do you know what the house of David is? The house of bread. What bread? The bread of life. And so no man had the keys that could open the house of David, that could open the house that was filled with the bread of life. And the gates of death were prevailing against us. They were shut and we were locked and still on the inside. That's where we were. We needed a friend. We needed an advocate. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 would say this. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus also himself likewise took part of the same took part of the death that we were taking part in. Now it's going to tell us why, right? That through his death, 
he might destroy him who had the power of death. That he might kick open the gates of death, take the keys of Hades, and have the keys now to open the house of David, the house that's filled with the bread of life, and give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven, which is the place where God's life and immortality is freely available and freely poured out, where the floodgates of God's life is flowing out. So all that's going down, God felt propitious towards mankind, not angry. You think God's angry with us that we can't produce his life? Do you think God thinks we're God? Oh, we definitely think we are. And we think he expects us to be also. And then that lends itself to us thinking that the people in our lives, they should also be God. Right? They better get their act cleaned up enough to where they can serve me with the peace that I deserve. <laughs> we don't realize it when we're doing it, but we're making them our God. <laughs> oh, no, don't say that again, Greg. Stop saying that. <laughs> I get much more what I want out of them when I get them on that, that track. <laughs> no, you don't. I promise you don't. That's a lie. So Jesus himself also took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So God, we're being held by the devil, held by death. The gates of Hades are closed upon us. God desired to be good to us. He had a burning in his bones to love you with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his strength. While you were being held in the death, while you were dead in the grave, while you were captive in the place of the dead, he saw that we were being held captive by death. He saw Satan had the power of death. And he saw that Satan had the keys to Hades and had us locked in. That's what he saw. So God's like, huddle up, huddle up. It's like Joe Montana when the 49ers were playing the Bengals and they had like a minute, you know, 10 left and they had to go 90 yards to score a touchdown. You call a huddle so you can orchestrate the plays that are going to score a touchdown and you get the victory. So God sees us being locked into the gates of death. And the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they huddle up. Huddle up, huddle up. We're going to call a play. We're going to call a play. And so they say, how can we restore mankind from their sin? How can we release them from the death that's holding them? How can we give them the, king, the keys to the kingdom of heaven so they can have free access to our life and our immortality? And you know how they decided they could do it? The love we feel in our heart for them will be made flesh and the man, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. Our love for mankind will be made flesh in him. And that's when Jesus came and took the death that was punishing us into his body on the cross. And in him doing that, he's overcome the grave. Did he come out of the grave? Do you know what happened when he came out of the grave? He kicked open the gates of Hades. He kicked it open. He unlocked. Jesus said, I open the door and no man closeth. He opened up that thing by the power of an indestructible life, a life that can't be held by death. His immortality is the key that opens up the, key, the gates of Hades. He kicked it open, never to be shut again. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Jesus was cleansed once for all time from the power of death or from death by the love God has for the world. We, we, we seem to struggle to connect God's love for Jesus with God's love for us. 
We think God did what he did for Jesus because he loves Jesus. Well, he loves Jesus, but Jesus was the son of man. And so the reason God raised Jesus and cleansed Jesus from the death that came upon him was because God loved all of us. That's why he did that. He's kicking open the gates. Gangbusters. Do you know if you read in Matthew 27, after Jesus was raised from the dead, do you know what it says? They saw people who had died walking around. Because he kicked open the gates, man. He destroyed him who had the power of death. You think your death can hold man? You think your death can keep us from delivering man? You think your death can keep us from giving the kingdom of heaven to man? Put your death on this guy, Jesus, and watch our life open that gate open, never to be closed again. Even in Revelation, it says the gate's open. God's not busy keeping some people out. It's just that some people don't come in. Do you know why they don't come in? Because their heart's still filled with fear at the thought of standing face to face with God. They never kept the commandment of Jesus. They didn't see the Father that Jesus revealed. <laughs> oh, man. Jesus gave us the, key, the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He opened the floodgates of God's incorruptible life. And the gates of death cannot shut us out of God's life. Like Job said, though the death in this world might come upon me, it might even rot away this mortal flesh from my bones. This one thing I know, my Redeemer is alive. The one who loves me, the one whom I'm like, my kinsman, the one whose kind I am, he is alive and the gates of death cannot shut out his life and his life will come forth in me and kick open that grave it will kick open and swallow the death that come to my house <laughs> oh man we have an advocate with the father john's not saying we need an advocate to represent us to the father that's not what he's saying he's not saying well god won't let us in until jesus is in there and then he'll let us in or god doesn't want us there is that what he's saying? What he's saying is we have an advocate and our advocate is seated at the right hand of the Father. It's like a locale thing, like location. When it says we have an advocate with the Father, where is Jesus now? With the Father. That doesn't mean that we need an advocate so that the Father will like us. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. It's saying we have an advocate according to the will of the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father wanted to be an advocate for us. The Father saw what death was doing to us. He saw that death was filling our hearts with fear. He saw that death was taking us captive. He saw that death was causing us to run away from him. He saw that death was causing us to try to give ourselves life. He saw all of that. And he said, these guys need an advocate. They need someone that can come and stand against the death that's condemning them. And so we have an advocate that's seated at the right hand of the Father that is all the time condemning the death that tries to work condemnation in us. You know, the word propitiation means mercy seat in the Greek. But we get a right to say it's about God's anger. It actually is translated in other places in the New Testament as mercy seat. 
Did God just become merciful when Jesus rose from the dead? Or was God always merciful? Seems like Jesus saw God was always merciful, even when man was dead in sin. Because there was Jesus dead in sin, and he said, God's merciful towards me. That's why he called upon his name. He said, this guy is filled with compassion towards me when I'm suffering. And he's got a strong desire to alleviate my suffering. I'm going to call upon that guy. And so we live in a world shadowed by death. That death is all the time wanting to uncover our nakedness. It's all the time wanting to work condemnation in our hearts. Jesus is our propitiation. He is our mercy seat. He is the place where we could see that God's eyes are filled with mercy towards us even when we find ourselves encountering sin and death. He's the place where we see God's eyes are full of mercy and not anger. After all, he was dead in our sin and look what the Father did with him raised him out of the grave, cleansed him from all death, never to be able to be infected by death again. Oh my gosh, I see that. And it tells me God's full of mercy towards me. So we see Jesus and that's supposed to tell us that the Father is our advocate. That's what it's supposed to tell us. The Father is our advocate. And how do we know? Because he's bound death once for all time in the body of Jesus' resurrection. He bound it. God bound it. Who raised Jesus from the dead? The Father. What did he do when he raised Jesus from the dead? He bound death. That's what he did. So we'll finish with this to wrap it all up. So we could put all of, there, there's probably like 30 verses in 1 John that I put in this little paragraph. So I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And I'll put my notes on the website. Read it. Find the verses for yourself because it connects all of these verses. But propitiation is about God being our advocate against death. Just like Jesus came as the advocate for the woman caught in the act of adultery, which that caused death to reign over her. Jesus was the Father. Propitiation is about God wanting to purify our hearts from fear. Him wanting to cleanse our hearts from the fear that's in the world because of death. And so we see Jesus, and we see that Jesus is sinless. You know what it means to be sinless? We talked about this in the Bible study. We, we think of the word sinless, and we think that Jesus had the best morals of anybody that's ever lived in the earth. That's what we think. The way, remember, the wages of sin is death. So what does it mean to be sinless? It means to be cleansed from death, never to have any death come into you ever again. And so we're supposed to see sinless Jesus cleansed from the wound of death, never to be able to be touched by death or corruption again. And as John would come and say in his letter, as we see the sinless Jesus cleansed from death, never to be able to be touched by death again, the gates of death cannot prevail against this man Jesus. John comes and lays that foundation, and then he comes and says, listen man, as Jesus is now, so are you in this world. That's how he would come later and say, those who have believed the commandment of Jesus, that have believed what Jesus revealed about the Father, they cannot sin. They're also sinless. The Father is our advocate, declaring to us that we're sinless. When the death that's in the world comes to our house and tries to tell us that sin is corrupting our lives and that our lives are being overcome and it's trying to fill us with fear. We have an advocate. His name is Abba. And the way he advocates for us is that he's cleansed Jesus from death. And now Jesus is sitting there as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And we see that if we're in him and he's in us, then we're sinless. We've been cleansed from the wound of death. You've been cleansed from the wound of death already. 
You're not trying to become cleansed. As Jesus is now, so are we in this world. Cleansed from death. Because he took our death into the grave and then he kicked the grave open and he came out with the life that had the keys to Hades. A life that overcomes death that can never be touched by death again. As he is now, so are we. (laughs) Uh, Now, we are the sons of God. Even though we, that's why John goes on to say that. Listen, guys, even though we don't see immortality in our bodies now, don't be confused. We're sinless. We've been cleansed from death already. Don't allow this perishable body that you see and the perishable life you see in the earth convince you that you haven't already been cleansed from death or that you need to preserve your life from death. Don't let it convince you of that. Even though we don't see immortality in our flesh now, we have the incorruptible seed abiding in us now and we know when we see him, we'll be the same that he is. Oh, man. That revelation will work to keep fear from your hearts. That's God being our advocate. I'm going to keep their hearts from fear. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to cleanse them from death. It perfects the love of God in our hearts. It replaces the fear we felt on account of death with the, the, the persuasion that God loves us because he conquered our death. So instead of feeling fear when you encounter death, your heart jumps to what the Father did to cleanse you from death. And your heart becomes filled with the Father's love for you and that he was an advocate for you and that he came and conquered your death and you start to feel love instead of fear. (laughs) Oh, and the gates of death, the death that's in the world cannot prevail against us. It can no longer fill our hearts with fear because as John would say, We know we are sinless, cleansed from death, even as Jesus is. (laughs) I promise you, all of us got something going on in our life right now that's trying to tell us we ain't cleansed from death. (laughs) We have an advocate with the Father. Right? And he's advocated for us by kicking open the grave and opening up the floodgates of the kingdom of heaven, his immortality and his life. So listen, guys, Jesus is not only the appeasing of our sin and the sin of the world, but Jesus satisfied God's desire, the Father's desire to love us. He satisfied the desire in the Father's heart to pour himself out for us. He satisfied the Father's love for the world. He is the propitiation of the Father's love for the world. That's why the sacrifice of Jesus is a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. Because the Father knew that Jesus was overcoming him who had the power of death. The Father knew that Jesus was kicking over the gates of Hades. And that he was going to take the keys of Hades and the keys of David. That's why the sacrifice was a sweet-smelling savor. It wasn't because he was so filled with anger and he felt such a nice release when he got to get it out on Jesus. (laughs) I'm I'm glad that you guys are laughing. Because it sounds ridiculous. But that's how it's taught. And we were all taught that. 
That's why Isaiah would come and say that the, the father will see Jesus crushed or bruised by the cross and he'll be satisfied. That's why Isaiah says that. Because God prophesied to the serpent, you're going to be crushed and you're going to be destroyed by the seed of woman. He's going to crush your skull and you're going to bruise his heel. And that's how Jesus was going to kick open the gates of Hades. That's how Jesus was going to restore us from death. And so the Father saw Jesus on the cross. And he remembered the play they called. And so when he saw the serpent bruising Jesus' heel, he didn't see it as Jesus' heel being bruised because the Father doesn't judge strength and weakness like we do. We judged weakness to be going on in Jesus. And the Father saw that the strength of his life was manifesting in Jesus Christ the righteous. And then it wasn't that the serpent was bruising the son. It's that the son was crushing the serpent. And he was satisfied. Because he had a burning in his bones to crush the serpent for thousands of years. Jesus is the appeasing of God's desire to crush the serpent. He is the propitiation of God's desire to crush the serpent. That's, that's propitiation. That's what Jesus came to show us about the Father, what we just talked about, what was in God's heart. Right? Glory to God. Thank you, Father. That, yes, we can preach this word and we could preach the truth, but we just thank you, Father, that uh, you've poured out your Holy Spirit and that your Holy Spirit is in the earth and it's in all of us. We just thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit will minister this truth into our hearts. That your Holy Spirit is actively incubating the knowledge of Christ Jesus, the true revelation of what it means that you're our Father. I just thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is in us, drawing us into this intimacy with you, where we're just walking and talking with you all the days of our life. That we're hearing your voice and we're knowing that you're hearing our voice. Thank you for your loving embrace. Thank you that just like the Father the good father in the account of the prodigal son, that just like the good father ran out to the son and hugged the neck of his son, even when he was covered in pig slop. I just thank you, Father, for the revelation that even when we were clothed in filthy rags, even when we had tried to clothe upon ourselves with life and we clothed ourselves with death, that you come running towards us to embrace us and fall on our necks and cry with love. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much for spending Sunday with me. I love you guys. I hope you know how precious you are to God, how precious you are to us.